morning again. I would invite you to bow with me once more. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that it speaks to us. Uh, it is alive and active by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that it can speak to us whether we are young children or whether we are old in years. Uh, your word is fresh, and I pray that you would open our hearts to receive it. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, we are going to resume our series from earlier this year on the book of Exodus entitled, The Way Out. Now, the video was a perfect setting for this because that's where we last left off in our series on Exodus, where the children of Israel, being led by Moses, have just miraculously escaped Pharaoh's army by crossing through the waters of the Red Sea on dry ground. Those little details in scripture are something that I often like to latch on to. Sometimes we just overlook them. But when it says something like they crossed over on dry ground, that in and of itself is a miracle, isn't it? We're talking about a seabed that has been immersed by water for thousands of years or probably at least since the flood, and it's dry. So not only do the waters part, but they're not slogging through mud, they're on dry ground. It's amazing what God can do. Now, here we see another little detail of this story that we often overlook. And that is the sheer size and the scale of Israel's great escape from Egypt. It is simply unparalleled in all of history. Nowhere else in the history books do we read of an entire nation, the size of Israel, being freed in one foul swoop from uh, an empire who has held them uh, captive and enslaved them. It is simply unparalleled. The closest comparison I can think of would be from recent history, and some of you will have noticed this uh, in the news in the past years, when in 2014, some 130,000 Yazidi people in Iraq were being uh, systematically persecuted and killed by ISIS. And so 130,000 of these Yazidi people were fleeing to the north, trying to get away from ISIS, and some 40,000 of them, men, women, and children, were stranded atop Mount Sinjar in northern Iraq. And all the while, the Iraqi, pardon me, the, the ISIS army surrounded the bottom of this mountain, and they're shooting at them, they're, they're lobbing mortars and, and firing at them, and they're surrounded. And, and all the while, up top, if there's not enough threat from the gunfire from below, they're also running out of food and especially water. And so this crisis finally hits the news, and we were all aware of this. Some of you will have remembered this. Do you, you remember when this took place? It was, it was quite the thing. It caught the world's attention. And you'll recall their plight. And so in response to this desperate situation, a rescue effort was coordinated with supplies being dropped from the air to the starving people below, followed by other coordinated attacks from Allied fighter planes in the air and Peshmerga ground forces to try to drive the ISIS forces back enough to allow the majority of these Yazidi people to escape the mountain. And they did, at least some of them. But as large of a scale as an escape as that was in recent history, we're talking about 40,000 people. As we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 15, we need to be reminded that this is not just a small group of people. Not that 40,000 is a small group by any means, but the number of people that are now standing safely on the eastern shore of the Red Sea is estimated to be at 2 million souls. 2 million people. Now, when we think about that number, that's about the population of Manitoba and Saskatchewan combined. So, 
Yeah, okay, you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, maybe a little over 2 million people, but still, that's the population we're talking about. This is massive. A whole lot of people. Not to mention, in their flight from Egypt, they didn't have any CF-18 Hornet fighter jets dropping bombs or soldiers firing artillery to cover their retreat. All Israel had was God, and God was enough. He was their only hope, and he came through. And so, we see here, this is the defining moment of Israel's escape and their new life as a nation. He had rescued them in the most spectacular way imaginable. And as they stand there, almost beyond belief of having been rescued in such a spectacular way on the eastern shore of the Red Sea, this was Israel's Independence Day. For Egypt was now in the rearview mirror in every possible way. Not only had they escaped, but now before their very eyes, they had seen the superpower army of the world destroyed in front of them. And so what is the very first thing Moses leads the people in? Well, we read that in Exodus 15, if you turn there with me. In verse 1, we read this. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And the song continues on in this vein for a total of 18 verses. And you thought our praise songs have a lot of verses. Try 18. Then at the conclusion of this song, the people still haven't had their fill of just rejoicing in God's salvation. They are still overflowing with the goodness of God and his mighty power. And so then we read in verses 20 to 21, the Mir- Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and its riders. He has hurled into the sea. So now we see here the people are overflowing with rejoicing. They're overflowing with thankfulness. It is probably the greatest, largest worship service in the history of man. Two million people rejoicing in God, their Savior. He had become truly their salvation. But now as incredible as God's deliverance had been, there was still one problem. They were not yet standing on the promised land. There was still more wilderness ahead of them. Now, here is where I'd like to highlight for you one important truth from this entire narrative of Exodus. I highlighted it for you earlier in the series, but that was back in February, I believe, so I'd like to re-highlight it for you. And that is this. The entire narrative of Israel's escape from Egypt... And their journey to the promised land is a close parallel to the Christian life. Like Israel, we all start out in the same position. We start out enslaved to sin. We are slaves. We are in captivity in Egypt, just as in the story. But then we come, like Israel, under the blood of the Passover lamb. They had the the blood of the lamb painted on their doorposts. And though they too deserved judgment and death... The blood of the Lamb covered them. And so too, as believers, when we come under the blood of Jesus Christ, we receive the mercy of God, and so his judgment passes over us. We then leave our old life of slavery to sin and self. You see, once we become believers, we don't stay in the world, we don't stay in sin, we leave it. We leave the old ways behind. 
And so like, like Israel leaving Egypt, we too leave. And then, like them, we pass through the waters of baptism. They pass through the Red Sea, and we enter the, the waters of baptism into Jesus Christ. And when our old enemy Satan, and in the story represented by Pharaoh, pursues us, desperate to keep us enslaved to sin, he cannot, for he was already defeated by the power of Jesus Christ in his perfect death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And so from that moment on, we are truly free to live our lives fully for God. Just as Israel was, they stand on the shores of the Red Sea truly free, delivered in every possible way, Now they are wholly set apart unto God. But now, just like Israel, there's still one problem. Like them, we are not standing in heaven yet. You see, from the moment we first believe, we are transformed. Our our salvation is secured through the power of Jesus' blood and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We are secured and saved, but we're not in heaven yet. There is still more of this life to travel. We still have further to go before we enter the promised land of heaven. And as you may have already experienced since the moment of your conversion, the journey between conversion and heaven is not always an easy one. Just like with Israel, there can be many challenges, trials, and yes, wilderness between here and there. And this brings us to our first lesson for today. Sometimes God leads us into the wilderness to teach us things that we can't learn anywhere else. Verse 22, Exodus chapter 15 says this, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding any water. Now you'll remember that the people of Israel have just come through the singular, most miraculous and defining moment in their nation's entire history, And so it seems a little bit strange to read that immediately after this amazing, powerful work of God, Moses leads the people immediately into the desert of Shur. It's a dry, bleak, dusty, parched wasteland, where after traveling for three days, they have not yet found one single drop of water. Now in those days, you'll have to remember, they don't have modern canteens like we have. Whatever they have would have been in small uh, small. Uh, canisters, perhaps in some makeshift leather uh, pouches where they would have water in. But after three days, these sources would all have been depleted. Not to mention they've been walking in, in the baking heat. So they are sweating extra water. Now, I'm sure you've heard or read of harrowing stories of people who have run out of all supplies. They've run out of food, they've run out of water, and they've had to survive in desert-like conditions. A professor by the name of Randall K. Packer wrote in a 2002 article for the Scientific American, Under extreme conditions, an adult can lose 1 to 1.5 liters of sweat per hour. If that lost water is not replaced, the total volume of body fluid can fall quickly, and most dangerously, blood volume may drop. If this happens, two potentially life-threatening problems arise. Sweating stops, and body temperatures can soar even higher while blood pressure decreases because of the low blood volume. Under such conditions, death occurs quickly. Because of their relatively larger skin surface-to-volume ratio, children are especially susceptible to rapid overheating and dehydration. So here we see 
The children of Israel, immediately having been delivered, are now in a very dangerous situation. Remember, close to half of the number of 2 million people are going to be children, 18 and under. And here we see that dehydration and running out of water, they are most susceptible to this. And so here we can see the adults looking at their children, thinking, are they going to last the day? And now this begs the question, why would God do this? Why would he put them in such a dangerous position after having just delivered them from Pharaoh's army? Well, I believe the reason is because God knows there are things that we must learn in the wilderness that we simply can't learn anywhere else. In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, we read this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I want to highlight for you that phrase, the testing of your faith. Because if we skip ahead in the narrative in chapter 15 of Exodus to verse 25, in the second, ver- second half of verse 25, we read this. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. Here we see that God has brought them into the wilderness, and he says he is testing them. You see, the journey through the desert of Shur was not just a random event. It wasn't just because, well, that was the land between uh, where they'd come across the Red Sea and, and the promised land that they had to travel. This is something God has deliberately brought about as a test. And the test was simple. Would they, only three days after passing through the Red Sea and seeing their enemies drown and having this fantastic worship service with all 18 verses of their song, plus the encore at the end with Miriam, after all of that, only three days in the rearview mirror, would they still trust God to provide a way? Or would they forget that quickly and give up and give in? to discouragement, to despair, and look to provide for themselves. The testing of faith in the wilderness. This is something that all followers of Jesus Christ must go through, and often many times over throughout the course of a life. This is an especially common occurrence for those who have recently placed their faith in Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord. When just like Israel, there is that initial joy and euphoria of being saved from sin and death and set free. But at some point after this life-changing encounter with God, we often call it a mountaintop experience. After this mountaintop, there inevitably comes a valley, a time where we have to come off of the mountain. And it's not just we who lead ourselves off the mountain. No, it's God who leads this new believer down the mountain and into the wilderness of some trial, need, or temptation. A place where they quickly discover that their human skills and provisions aren't enough to get them out. A place where everything they just experienced of God's power and goodness is put to the test. You'll recall the same pattern happening in the Lord Jesus' life. When after that spiritual high, if you will, of being baptized, and the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove, Then that same spirit we read in the next verse immediately leads Jesus into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and prays to his father. And it is there that he is tempted both physically and spiritually when Satan himself comes 
to tempt Jesus. Now make no mistake, God our Father is not interested or content to leave us as we are. He's not content to leave us as immature believers. He's not content to leave us in a position of of only living in the afterglow and euphoria of that first moment of salvation. No, God is interested in one thing, and that is our complete and total transformation into the likeness and the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will go to all and any lengths to, to accomplish that goal. Remember, he who began the good work in you will carry it out until the day of completion. And as we know, that process is not always pleasant for us on this side. The process involves wilderness, it involves trials, it involves temptations. And yes, even like Israel here, it involved being on the brink of death by not having enough water. And so here we see God is testing his people, not because he's wanting to somehow inflict torture upon them for some vindictive reason. No, he wants to transform them. He wants to teach them a deeper level of trust. Would they continue to trust him in this situation? He doesn't do this to to punish us. He does it, in fact, because he loves us. And he is interested in our total transformation. And he will not stop until the day that we are on heaven's soil. And so if you find yourself today in a dry place, perhaps you look around your life and it feels like you're in the wilderness right now. I want you to hold on to God's hand and keep trusting him because what God accomplishes in the dry place, he may not be able to do in the place of fullness and of no want. You see, it is in the wilderness where we learn that he is fully trustworthy, fully faithful, and fully dependable. And it is also through the pathways of the wilderness that he will lead us to the waters of refreshing. And this leads us to lesson number two for this morning. And that is, our response to trials can make us either bitter or better. How we respond will make us bitter or better. Exodus 15, verses 23 to 24, we continue to read. When they came to Merah, they could not drink its waters because it was bitter. And that is why the place is called Marah. Now, we're reminded in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. You'll recall the story of of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi being Ruth's mother-in-law. And after having gone through many bitter situations, including the death of her her husband and sons, Naomi, which means pleasant, she opts to change her name to Mara, which means bitter. And in fact, Naomi was so bitter in her circumstances that she goes on to blame her troubles on God, saying this, The Almighty has made my life very bitter. So here we see Naomi has come up against these terrible circumstances in life. Everyone she loves, her husband, her sons are dead, and she says, I am bitter. And this is her response. And now we come back to Israel. And after three days of traveling through the desert, we can just imagine the people eagerly seeing that precious life-giving water in the distance. Eagerly, whatever energy they have left, they stumble towards this water to quench their thirst and most importantly to feed their children who they can see are on death's door. And they come there and they dip their their faces in, they fill their canisters, and immediately they discover the water is 
bitter, and undrinkable. Now, different scholars have kind of had different ideas on what could have actually been wrong with the water. I won't bore you with those details. The bottom line being that this water would have had to have been very bad. We're talking nasty for people who are about to die from dehydration to not drink it. It had to have been putrid. So bad that there was no possible way they could have made this water better. They couldn't have boiled it enough. It simply was that bad. So, just when they think their misery is over, it gets worse. The bitter taste in their mouth. That must have been a tough pill to swallow, right? Left a bad taste in the mouth. All those puns would apply here. How do the people respond? Verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Now, if there's one thing that Israel was very good at, they were experts, it was a national pastime, actually, was complaining. They were masters at grumbling. There's a story told of a restaurant patron, you may have heard this one, who seemed particularly bothered about the temperature in the restaurant. So he complained to the waiter that it was too cold and asked if the air conditioner could be turned down. Well, the waiter told the patron that he'd get right on that and do that immediately. A few minutes later, the patron then complained to the same waiter that, you know, it's now a little too hot. So the waiter again apologized and told the now irate patron that he would make a slighter adjustment to the air conditioner. Well, these temperature complaints continued. And the slight adjustments happened several more times through the course of the evening. Finally, a man at another table who had been watching and overhearing these exchanges quietly asked the waiter, How can you be so patient with this man's constant complaints and keep accommodating him, of all things? Well, the waiter smiled and replied in a whisper, It's simple. The restaurant doesn't even have an air conditioner. Now, unlike this patron, the truth is Israel did have something more substantial to complain about. Yes, they were, they were actually on the verge of death. There was a legitimate aspect to their complaint. But as believers today, we know we are instructed in Philippians 2, 2 verse 14 with this very straightforward statement. It says, do everything without complaining or arguing. So it's, it's a catch-all. It covers everything. It says, do everything without complaining or arguing. This is to be the default setting for the child of God. We are to live our lives without complaint and without arguing. Now, the truth is about Israel's situation, they had not yet received this word, and they were not about to begin following it. They grumbled. They complained to Moses. And we see throughout the story, the narrative of Exodus, you'll recall from earlier in the series, that this is only one of countless times where Israel complained. In fact, in the very next chapter, even after God deals with this situation, we find Israel once again complaining about their food and the lack of meat. And in the chapter after that, in Exodus 17, verses 3 to 4, we read that uh, a few deliverances later, again, they are complaining about water, and we read this. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And so here we see that Israel, like Naomi, 
rather than becoming better, rather than growing in their trust in God's provision, whatever the circumstance, the people become bitter. Rather than learning what God was trying to teach them about trusting him more fully to provide, all they could see was their own needs. And what they needed was a change of perspective. You may have heard the story of how many years ago, a large American shoe manufacturer sent two sales reps out to different parts of the Australian outback to see if they could drum up some business amongst the the aborigines. Sometime later, the company received telegrams from both of the agents. The first one said, No business here. Natives don't wear shoes. The second agent said, Great opportunity here. Natives don't wear shoes. See, it's all a matter of perspective. Now, maybe you're going through a wilderness time right now where trials or challenges or failures have made life bitter. If so, don't react like the children of Israel who could only grumble and say, Woe is me! Woe is me! Oh God, why are you doing this to me? Instead, change your perspective. Change your perspective and do these three things. Number one, remember. Remember that your faith must be tested in the wilderness in order to grow stronger. Remember the passage in James, our call to worship we read earlier. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. Why? Because we love trials? No. I don't love going through trials. I don't love wilderness experience. But I do love growing. And that's why James says, consider it pure joy when you face these things because you know it will grow your faith. Your perseverance will grow and your maturity will come about through this process. So remember, your faith must be tested in the wilderness in order to grow to maturity. Number two, remember what God has already done for you. And then number three, pray and ask for God's provision. Now you may think, Only three days after passing through the Red Sea, the children of Israel should have had no problem remembering what God had already done for them. But oh, how quickly they forgot. And are we any different? How often do we face some trial in life that we haven't faced something ten times greater in the past and God came through for us then? But do we remember that? No. We look at this trial and say, oh, how are we ever going to get through this one? Instead of looking at our trial, take a minute and remember, what has God already done on your behalf? What has he done for you? In fact, let's take it one step further in remembering what he's already done for us. If God has already saved your soul from hell, then what challenge are you currently facing that is bigger than that? And if you know that heaven is your eternal home, then When your hot water tank goes out, like mine did last month, and there's water all over the floor and you're looking at a big bill from the plumber, rather than lamenting all of that and wasting any time complaining about it, remember what Jesus has done. Remember, this home is temporary. I'm just passing through heaven is my eternal home. And when we remember what God has already done for us, when we remember what he's already promised to give us, it puts everything in this life in proper perspective. And so having done that, remembering what God has already done, then we pray and we ask for God's provision. This is what Moses did. Exodus 15:25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. 
Now, isn't it interesting that of all the things God could have done, he used a piece of wood. Now, of course, again, I could bore you with details of speculation on what that piece of wood could have been and how it could have had a chemical reaction in the water and done all these things. It's all conjecture. It's a miracle. But why did God choose to use a piece of wood as the instrument of this miracle? Well, I find the parallel and the foreshadowing strikingly clear. That of all the ways that God could have orchestrated the salvation of the world, his only begotten son died upon an old piece of wood. And of all of the ways God could have transformed that water into sweet, he used a piece of wood. And remember, this is a parallel of the Christian life that we are looking at in the Exodus. And so here we see that in this single act, God took the bitterness of death and he transformed it into the sweetness of life. He took bitter water and he turned it sweet. He took death and he transformed it through a piece of wood into life. And so too, Jesus faced the bitterness of death. He faced it head on. He faced hell's fury head on on an old piece of wood, crucified to it. And he transformed something that everyone has feared, the bitterness of death, the finality of death, and he removed the sting. And so now for the believer, death has no sting. In fact, we look on death as sweetness, for we know that it is the doorway, the gateway to everlasting life in Christ's presence. So my friends, let me ask you, what is your outlook on life right now? Are you feeling bitter about something? Is your, is your outlook towards anything in that category? Then why not ask God for some of his sweetener? Apply the cross of Jesus Christ to your situation. Take that piece of wood like Moses and throw it in. God's provisions are always available to those who seek them. And only he can make the most trying of situations and transform them from making us bitter and instead make us better as we grow into the likeness of Christ. This was true of a man named Joseph Scriven. Joseph was born in September 10th of 1819 in Ireland. His parents were wealthy. They had financial means enough to afford a wonderful education for their son who who graduated university with a bachelor's degree. He then fell in love with a young lady who was eager to spend her life with him. They had a whirlwind courtship. However, on the day before their wedding, while crossing a bridge over the river band, she fell from her horse and was drowned in the water below, as Joseph stood helplessly watching from the other side of the river. In an effort to overcome his sorrow, he began to wander. By age 25, Joseph and his travels had taken him to an area near Port Hope, Canada. He became highly regarded by the people of that area. He tutored some of the local children in their schoolwork. And it was there that he met another wonderful young lady named Eliza Roche. And again, he fell in love. They had an exciting plan to be married. However, tragedy reared its ugly head once more, and she died of pneumonia before they could wed. Nonetheless, what would have crushed many men, Joseph Scriven continued his work amongst the impoverished widows and sick people of New Hope often serving for no wages and even sharing his clothes with those less fortunate than himself. On an occasion when Joseph became ill, a friend who was visiting with him discovered a poem near his bedside, and he asked who had written it. And Scriven said, The Lord and I did it between us, 
He never meant for anyone to read the poem. It was personal. On August 10th, 1886, Scriven's body was pulled from a body of water near Boodley, Ontario. He had fallen in and drowned. Two monuments have since been erected in his honor in that community. Each has the first stanza of his poem engraved upon it. You might recognize it. It goes like this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Today, may we choose, like Joseph, like Moses, to bring everything to God in prayer. Rather than becoming bitter, allow God to take our wilderness and our trials to make us better, to make us sweeter, to grow us into the image of the Son he loves, Jesus Christ. For one day, we will be standing on the soil of the promised land of heaven, and we will say it was all worth it and then some. Light and momentary struggles are nothing in comparison to the glory yet to be revealed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that everything that we endure in this life, every trial, every wilderness that we face, if we look to you, you can use them for our good. That rather than allowing these circumstances to turn us bitter, we pray, Lord, that we would embrace these things as the means to which we can be transformed and to grow and to mature into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we receive these lessons. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's in a wilderness where they're confused, they don't know what's going on, they can't see the way out, oh, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit, work in their heart, give them a change of perspective to look to you and recognize you are working this for their good. So long as they look to you, call out on your name, and you will provide a way for them to move forward. And so we pray, Lord, that you would build up your people, build up this church according to your will, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.